Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 41. Those who pay close attention to the poor are truly happy. The Lord rescues them during troubling times. The Lord protects them and keeps them alive. They are widely regarded throughout the land as happy people. You won't hand them over to the will of their enemies. The Lord will strengthen them when they are lying in bed sick. You will completely transform the place where they lie ill. But me? I said, Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me because I have sinned against you. My enemies speak maliciously about me. When will he die and his name disappear? Whenever they come to visit, they say nothing of value. Their hearts collect evil gossip. Once they leave, they tell it to everybody. All of those who hate me talk about me, whispering to each other, plotting evil against me. Some horrible thing has been poured into him. The next time he lies down, he won't get up. Even my good friend, the one I trusted, who shared my food, has kicked me with his heel, a betrayer. But you, Lord, please have mercy on me and lift me up so I can pay them back. Then I'll know you are pleased with me because my enemy won't be shouting in triumph over me. You support me in my integrity. You put me in your presence forever. Bless the Lord, the God of Israel, from forever to forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture for today comes from the book of Acts, and I'm going to read a slightly different selection from the first chapter of Acts than is listed in your bulletin. Hear now the word of God. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons. And Peter said, friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share of this ministry. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. 
Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If I asked for your resume or CV, you could likely pull something even out of date from your file cabinet. But what if I asked you for your resume or CV of failures? A few years back, medical lecturer Melanie Stefan counseled her academic colleagues to keep a CV of their failures. After publishing her own, the idea took root. I read several examples online. My favorite, written in 2016 by a little-known professor of psychology at Princeton University who catalogs the degree programs that rejected him, the academic positions, fellowships, and research funding that eluded him, rejections of his papers submitted to academic journals, and a final category, a classic, meta-failures. The entry there is but one sentence. This darn CV of failures has received way more attention than my entire body of academic work. (laughs) How right he is, for now you too know the name Johann Haushofer. A resume of failure tracks the times we didn't hit the mark, the opportunities we lost, and perhaps what we learned from them. It may be self-flagellation, but to honestly assess our failures, to be introspective and analytical about our defeats, is to grow, to change, and to become. Success is rarely easy or quick or automatic, and it almost never follows a straight line. We do learn more from failure than from success. I wonder if God keeps a resume of failure? And if so, would we be on it? Surely not. God never fails, not ultimately. And in the end, God doesn't make mistakes. But humans do. From Adam and Eve to David to Peter to Judas, God's elect have always failed. From Pentecost on, the church has failed. Our Reformed theology recognizes that reality by grounding itself in these ancient words, the church reformed, ever reforming. Ever reforming, because we do get it wrong from time to time, even this church, something we've been humbly pondering this year. The disciples could write one doozy of a CV or resume of failures. One Bible nerd attempted to write one for Peter, of course, and posted it online. His failure resume includes things like failed to understand a parable, prevented children from coming to Jesus, interrupted a sacred moment between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah by offering to build shelters, (laughs) failed and fell asleep at Gethsemane, and publicly denied being associated with Jesus in any way. I wonder if after reading this first chapter of Acts, if he would have added calling Matthias. For perhaps hiring Matthias for the job of an apostle was just that, 
of failure. After his resurrection and before he ascended to heaven, Jesus took a full 40 days to prepare the disciples for a change in leadership. He taught them what to do. Step one, wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for that guiding, empowering source of God would be coming soon. Wait for it, he said. Wait for the Spirit who will partner with you for the sake of the church's mission to the world. Perhaps Peter didn't hear him. As usual, the dense disciples didn't get Jesus' simple message. Thinking more about their own needs for organization and structure and support, Peter and the others, without instruction or demand from Jesus, decided step one should be to complete their roster. Judas was gone, and they needed a replacement. It's hard to wait on the spirit when you have an open position. They didn't even consider an interim, a very Presbyterian (laughs) thing to do. But instead, they jumped right into filling the permanent position. Quickly completing the job description, Peter, a visionary rather than a micromanager, left it to the 120 in the upper room to figure it out. Two candidates were recommended, Joseph, also called Justice, and Matthias, to little-known characters with impeccable credentials. And so, between the two, after a prayer, they cast lots. That was not uncommon with big decisions, to roll the dice, to flip a coin. Leaving a decision of significance to chance, looking for God's will the easy way, Matthias won by luck of the draw, and this winner... Someone we would expect to show up in the honor roll of all-stars alongside James and John and Peter and Andrew promptly vanishes from the text and our history. Matthias. Know much about him? We know his name and nothing else, for he never appears again. We do know the name of the runner-up, Joseph of Barsabbas, or Justice, who took the silver medal. He's more known Tradition numbers him among the 70 disciples in Luke 10, and it is believed that he went on to become the bishop of Eleutheropolis, where he died a martyr and is now venerated as a saint. Absent a full historical accounting, we are left to speculate who was the right one for the job. Given our human capacity for failure, might this whole scene might have just gone wrong. And if it did, What can we learn from it? Justo Gonzalez, biblical scholar, wonders what would have come to pass had the disciples waited for the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Had they not placed structure above mission and done as Jesus commanded, would the selection have been Joseph or perhaps a rightly qualified woman? Someone with special needs who had a unique place in Jesus' circle? What was the mind of God's spirit about how to move forward the church's mission and those who would represent it? Remember, what happened just days later at Pentecost was anything but predictable. Tongues of fire, many languages, all kinds of beautiful chaos and the upending of tame norms. 
What if Peter and his friends grasp what we know, that we have the power to hold back the church when we choose our personal preferences and get in the way of a church being driven and inspired by the Holy Spirit? The mission of God in this world takes time. It takes creative imagination and energy, and the body of Christ truly comes alive when it steps outside of our prefabricated boxes, limiting scripture and tradition to what we know and the way it's always been. It takes communication. It takes conversation, collaboration, and God knows lots and lots of prayer. Back in 2010, when our church began exploring Celtic Christianity with pilgrimages to the Scottish Isle of Iona, we learned that the ancient Celtic people saw the Holy Spirit not as a hovering white dove, but as a wild goose, an untamed creature that moves in unexpected ways. Like a wild goose, the Holy Spirit is unpredictable, free, and has a presence with a tendency to disrupt and surprise. The Holy Spirit, scripture, and experience shows operates in anything but a straightforward and staid manner. Consider St. Francis of Assisi, who heard the voice of God to rebuild my church and set out initially to rebuild the physical church at San Damiano. But the Spirit leading Francis had other ideas, and he would come to rebuild a, build a religious order that would change the world and lay a strong spiritual foundation for faithful people. Consider Martin Luther, who studied to be a lawyer and then a monk, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote a little document that changed Christendom. He later married a former nun and had six children. Who was that nun? And what was her own crooked story? Consider contemporary theologians like Nadia Bowles Weber, the tattooed and pierced pastor of the 600-member house for all saints and sinners, or Anne Lamott. Both went through hell before being called to guide others toward heaven. Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese, gives us an image of this animal calling us to find our place in the world, what the Holy Spirit creatively and often unpredictably calls us to do. She writes, whoever you are, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Calling us to a wild goose chase, we find our best ways of serving. How wild and free is saying a prayer and rolling the dice? Filling an open position as soon as possible? It is impatiently doing what we humans do. We try to control things. The disciples were just being human, and it's what we would have done too. Gonzalez is provocative and maybe spot on. They didn't wait for the Spirit. But I keep coming to a different question. What if these guys just didn't get who this Holy Spirit is? It's one thing to receive the Holy Spirit and quite another to know and grasp and accept that Spirit, to see it clearly and know where it is moving, to take a leap of faith and follow. Malcolm Gladwell in his podcast Revisionist History introduces David Galenson, who writes on the origins of creativity. Galenson separates people into two categories, conceptual innovators and experimental innovators. Here I quote Gladwell. 
Conceptual innovators do their best work very on in life and with ease, very early in their life and with ease. They tend to work quickly, have specific ideas that they want to communicate, and can articulate those ideas clearly. They plan precisely and meticulously, and then they execute. Boom. Picasso, who demonstrated extraordinary talent in his early years, he is the perfect example. Experimental innovators, on the other hand, never have a clear, easy, articulated idea. They don't work quickly. They start off, don't really know where they're going, work by trial and error, do endless drafts, and are perpetually unsatisfied. Cezanne was an artist who painted the same portrait again and again, trying to stumble on something he felt was right. Now, across the fields of movies, literature, and music, Gladwell further explains these two types of people. Moby Dick, written when Melville was 32, was authored in a heartbeat. He's Picasso. He's conceptual. Huck Finn, in, twa in Twain's late 40s, takes him forever because he obsessively keeps rewriting the ending. He's Cezanne, experimental. Orson Welles makes Citizen Kane when he's 24, Picasso. Alfred Hitchcock doesn't reach his prime until his mid-50s when he spends his entire career making one thriller after another, playing with a genre over and over. Hitch is Cezanne. And then there's music. Bob Dylan's song, I and I, took him 15 minutes to write. Picasso. The brilliant and beloved song, Hallelujah, by Leonard Cohen, is textbook Cezanne. Torturing him for five years, Cohen wrote 50, 60, or even 70 verses. He obsessively tinkered, re-recorded, and recorded again. It took decades to become the legend that it is, but only after being covered by others and a wild set of circumstances by which it came to be known to you. Pondering this idea of people who are conceptual innovators or experimental innovators... And thinking about the call of Matthias, I had to ask, which one is God? And more importantly, who does God want to fill God's open positions? The Holy Spirit creatively crafts God's work in the world and is conceptual and experimental and so much more. But we expect God's Spirit to be at her best an experimental innovator, a relentless potter, one working with the clay that is us. We are one canvas upon which God as a holy Cezanne does his best work. We are edited, reworked, and redrawn on a daily basis. The divine experimental innovator sees you and I as a work in progress. You <coughs> arise from God's genius. You you are here. You are being used. You are being made. You are being beautifully you. God is writing and rewriting our lives, tinkering with all the verses and helping us to tinker with them too. Hallelujah for that. The 120 gathered surely wanted a conceptual innovator to fill their open position. We all look for those who show early signs of promise. We love overachievers. We admire child prodigies, pure successes, scar-free and scandal-free leaders. That's who we seek. May I see your resume? For resident ministers, you want the brightest and the best. 
for an interim pastor, the sharpest fit for our church, for director of music, a celebrated talent. We read for success, not failure. But where did growth come? What tinkering has God done and is doing? We'd never ask for a resume of failure, would we? Was Matthias a failure? Probably not. Matthias was God, the conceptual innovator at work. He peaked early. Joseph Justice, perhaps he was an experimental innovation of the Lord who just needed more time to marinate, a man God went back to again and again. This church is coming back. Committees are working to select people who will lead us into the future. Our nominating committee, the interim pastor search committee, the soon-to-be-named director of youth ministries committee, and the director of music search committee, they are listening to the Holy Spirit, not merely filling job openings, not merely completing our structure. They are all about our mission. They want to hear where God is calling and catch God's vision. Amidst the inevitable comments from church members that it is time to move on, fill roles, get on with it, and hearing the critics say that Presbyterians are pathetically slow, <laughs> they know. I, too, sense the urgency for this church to step into our future. But if we aren't walking with the Holy Spirit, no matter how thoughtfully those steps are laid, we best watch out for what we will surely step in. First Prez is a little bit Picasso and a whole lot of Cezanne. Our people are of both persuasions. As a church, we're more Hitchcock than Wells, more Huck Finn than Moby Dick, and we're certainly a holy and broken hallelujah. Will we be more Joseph than Matthias with a story told for years to come? Author Lydia Yuknovich of Cezanne herself said this, even at the moment of your failure, right then you are beautiful. You don't know it yet, but you have the ability to reinvent yourself endlessly. That's your beauty. Hmm. God is endlessly reinventing us too. Like the disciples in the church universal, we could write a resume of failures, but God is not done here. Welcome and wait for that wild goose. Grab on and fly with it. For the beautiful thing the Holy Spirit is doing will make something more of us, this church and this world. Hallelujah, indeed. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh God, our ever-present God, we bring you the needs of our land, the hungry and the homeless, the wounded and despairing. We pray for all who seek shelter and heat on these cold, cold winter days. God, we bring you the needs of ourselves and our loved ones, seeking your peace and healing, your wisdom and protection. We pray for everyone in our community who is grieving, whether they're grieving the loss of a loved one or a job, the loss of independence, or unfulfilled expectations. We pray for grief in all of its forms that you would comfort those who grieve, O oh God. We pray for all in our community who are lonely, who feel like they don't matter. We pray for those battling depression and mental illness, those who feel overcome by substance abuse. Remind them that you are walking with them, Lord. 
We pray for everyone in our church family who feels the anxiety of a chronic illness, an upcoming surgery, or treatment. We also pray for all those battling cold, flus, and other illnesses during this winter season. We pray that you would keep our kids and young people in school safe from contracting and spreading illnesses. And, O oh Lord, we also pray for their safety, their safety, that you would keep them safe from gun violence. We pray for Marjorie Douglas Stoneman High School as they continue to grieve and make sense of the tragedy that happened almost a year ago. And we pray for all those other communities, all of them, throughout the whole U.S. and world that have been affected by gun violence. We pray for those who are grieving losses. God of welcome, we come together to reflect and pray, to listen and love. Let us break down the walls that separate us from you and from one another. For in you there is no stranger, in you there is only peace. Let us walk the way of the open heart. Help us to do so, O oh Lord. We pray for all the other joys and concerns on all of our hearts this morning. We pray all of this and more as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day of daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.